Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I am joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. They're from Longform. I'm from Atavist. Hello, guys. Hey. What's up, gentlemen? I was just packing my bag. I'm <laughs> heading down to Austin. It's a, cl- it's a field trip. What you going to do in Austin? It's a, is this our first field uh, podcast field trip? I think it might be uh, first uh, first trio field trip. Definitely with all three, it's the first time we're going. Uh, we are going to Austin. Uh, we have a really awesome event planned there. Um, we're going to have a party with Texas Monthly and ASME. Um, who, who's who's going to be at that? We're going to do a live podcast. There's going to be three guests. We're each going to do one interview. Uh, Pam Koloff, Mimi Swartz, and Lawrence Wright. Sounds amazing. I heard, gonna man, be what a lineup. I've heard beer. I've heard rumors that there will be free beer and barbecue as well. Uh, queso. Uh, I'm, oh. I'm told there's going to be barbecue, there's going to be beer, but also just endless queso. Queso. Also, according to Jake Silverstein of Texas Monthly, country music will be involved. You guys should come. It's uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, March 8th at Shoals Beer Garden. Uh, it's going to be fun. Come. Uh, even if you don't come, um, we'll have the audio from that out in a few weeks Yeah, um, when it's all tied up. Uh, who did you talk to this week, Evan? I talked to Jennifer Senior, who is a writer for New York Magazine, and uh, she has a book out called All Joy and No Fun. We're kind of on a run of uh, yeah, New fun. York Magazine <laughs> folks who have books out. Um, but There's uh, no conspiracy. <laughs> the, the, the conspiracy is is a lack of planning oversight. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but Jennifer Senior is great. Her book is also you'll see it everywhere. If you haven't seen it already, it's just like it's on the New York Times bestseller list. And um, she also she's been writing for New York Magazine for a long time, so she's she's seen a lot uh, over those years. If you've been writing for a long time uh, and people are having track keep trouble keeping track of what you've been writing, uh, you might want to start an email newsletter. With uh, Tiny Letter, they're our sponsors. They're from Mailchimp. It's the easiest way to get your message out tomorrow. So let's sign up for that and let's listen to Evan and Jen Senior. (laughs) (laughs) Aaron is a counselor. (laughs) Jennifer, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I feel like we should create a space in which you don't have to talk about your book. That's what we should do here. That would be amazing. You want to talk about, like, furniture? <laughs> yeah, we could talk about anything. I've, but then your publicist will show up here, like, probably mid-interview. They'll, they'll With sense it. Yeah. And, uh, but you, uh, you must have had the craziest couple of weeks. You know, you're right about parenting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got a lot of calls. <laughs> yeah. Turns out there are a lot of parents out there. <laughs> so... <laughs> or parenthood, I should say. I didn't write a parenting book, but yes, it's. Uh, I'm tired. I I won't kid you. I've I've said the same thing over and over again. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I felt like that's that's the, putting pressure on me because I was. I read the book, uh, which we should say what the name of the book is. It's all joy and no fun. Um, and I read the book, and then I was looking at other interviews, and then it created this tremendous pressure to like not ask you the questions that you've been asked now like 25 times in the last however many weeks. I'm so sorry, because you know, of course we've all done that, and it made me realize that like I tortured people in exactly <laughs> this way, and you think you've come up with like a couple of questions that are really good, and they're not. You know, that's what you realize. <laughs> no, they aren't. <laughs> There's nothing. The best thing you got, that silver bullet in your chamber is actually... <laughs> I, can't, I can't get you off your talking points. There's no... It's, it's impossible. It's not that. No, no, no. I mean, please do. I, and it's not... And, and I like some people. I, I mean, I don't even know how to say... It. It's just that, that, you know, you start to hate yourself because you think, I should be coming up with different answers, and mm-hmm. I should be coming up with better answers. Mm-hmm. And also... 
people are going to start to notice that I gave this answer in a different interview because they read the clips too. And they're also going to think that your knowledge of your own topic is very thin because you're giving the same answers. And in fact, you're doing it out of fear more than anything else because it worked once. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> and you and I are not like trained necessarily to be, you know, extravagantly extroverted and talk about our stuff all the time. And that's why we write. It's why we hide behind computer screens. That's why you ask the questions. That's why we ask. Yeah. Exactly. So you figure if you've performed the answer once well, you're just going to keep going. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> hey, look, they didn't flinch. I'll just say that 20 times. You know? <laughs> but I don't talk process with people, you know, when that's what's... You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to talk about that in terms of in terms of the book because, like, of course, I'm thinking a lot about that when I'm when I'm reading the book. I will say this book is the book that has made me talk the most with other people about parenting, uh, not being a parent <laughs> that you could imagine. Like I was now so I'm glad. talking to everyone about parenting, which I assume is what parents uh, talk about with each other. Now I am joining the conversation with parents about parenting. Well, now let me tell you something kind of awful. I talk very little about parenting with my <laughs> friends. <laughs> including the parent friends. In fact, um, we make a point of not talking about our kids sometimes just because it's, um, I mean, there's so much going on in our lives that are not about our children. And also kids don't always generate the most interesting anecdotes. I mean, my kid is six. You know, th there's a limit to, I mean, I think when kids become adolescents, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. I think then they are proto people. They're real stakes. But I think, you know, with my friends who have kids my age, I don't find us going there very much. I mean, what are you going to say? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, I love my kid. He's fabulous. But, you know, the things that I think are really cool about him are kind of idiosyncratic. They're not going to translate. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, plenty of people are don't make that recognition and they're a little bit insufferable. Oh, I'm as sorry. As anyone is who's, you know, in love with something. Right. I guess that's can't true. necessarily express it. But, right. I guess that's true. Um, I felt like you you did in the course of the book you sort of surface the reporting process a little bit because like my natural question would be, okay, this came out of a magazine article. So you wrote this magazine article for New York Magazine, same title and uh, a germ of a concept um, about, well, why don't you just describe the basic premise? Right. So the, the basic premise of the magazine piece was that there was this um, very robust body of literature in social science I mean, it was, and it was in many different disciplines in social science. It was mm -hmm. in like psychology and sociology and economics. It kept reappearing. Uh, that said, that kids don't improve their parents' happiness, and I decided I wanted to interrogate it because it seemed like very right and very wrong. So, uh, in 2010, I, I did this story for New York about it. I mean, that was the thing that got me thinking about okay, but more broadly, how do kids affect their parents? I mean, because it's a very blunt answer to say they do or don't improve your happiness. I mean, I don't even know what that means, really. Right. So um, I just kind of wanted to look at it from every which way. I remember talking about that piece with people when it came out because it, the thing that I loved in there was this idea that if you ask people if they're happy later on or they're happy to have children, they'll say yes. But if you have these ways of measuring where they have to record at any given moment that they're whether they're moment happy. to moment happiness <laughs> is totally compromised, right? Exactly. That's such a fun, that's like a fun fact to talk about with people, right? And I don't know, you know, whether or not. I mean, there haven't been that many studies that have been designed that way, but certainly the ones that have have been pretty um, condemned. Have been pretty damning. I mean, who knows? Maybe somebody will come up with a you know, we'll look at parents' moment to moment affect and discover that they're happier you know I mean but for now that ain't what we got um, but yeah retrospectively parents will tell you that raising their kids was the best thing and the thing that provided them with the most joy yeah. and that comes from like I want to say it's Pew I mean Pew Research Gallup everybody has asked parents this question and they overwhelmingly say that the best thing they ever did with their lives and the most joyous thing they did was raise their kids and yes it stands in a very stark contradiction too. So, so you hit on this premise which is like it's a fantastic ma magazine story premise. How did you go from from magazine to book in the sense that I feel like you've written a bunch of magazine stories that feel like at any given point you could have, you know, you wrote about loneliness and people who live alone. Like right. so like magazine stories that could become uh book so did did, right. did you have an agent or an editor who came to you and said this is the one or did you feel it yeah right there's always like at least one person who after you write a social science story there's always someone from publishing who right because they think oh great you know um this smells vaguely like a v malcolm gladwell book <laughs> yeah. 
and you just break out in hives and go, no, 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 that's not the idea here. Um, um, I mean, I love Malcolm's stuff, but like, that's not, you know, no one wants to be another, you know, an iteration of the same person. So what happened? I hear this was the first time, honestly, that I felt like I didn't say nearly as much as I could have after I'd been like on NPR and I'd um, talked to people about the, uh, the story. There was a a lot left in my notes yeah. that I just had not written up. Um, it was agonizing to trim the story. Um, and so that was one reason. I got more solicitations from publishing houses than I usually did. And I already had an agent. I had had an agent for a long time, even though I'd never written a book, because the understanding was that one day I would, and I knew who my agent was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got so many queries from agents that I just thought, wow, okay, well, the consensus seems to be that there's more there, and I felt like there was more there. So, um, Did you stick with your agent? I did. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I was never going to leave her. We could have gone somewhere dark. If no, I adore her. Yeah, no, was, no, no. I decided agent. she wasn't up to the task. No. <laughs> no, she's amazing. So I decided, well, yeah, I got to, I, I don't know. I, it just, it seemed natural. And also, you know, I, th- I think we have to be honest. I mean, I, I was in the magazine business. I was at one of the only magazines that still offered health insurance and offered us a safe place. I mean, I have one of the few remaining paid steady jobs in this business and um but I sat there thinking you know I have a kid I'm about to have a mortgage and I don't know if this is going to last you know and so I guess there was some small part of me that also thought it would be smart to try something else Mm -hmm. yeah I'm sure to take a shot at it yeah I mean people must talk about that in here like just staring at like you know you're kind of the the person in the, in the to the left and to the right of you in the trench have been shot. And <laughs> you're yeah. still standing and you cannot believe it. And you think, well, this isn't like how long can this luck last? I mean, if, if I'm rational, I know that like I can't dodge these bullets for forever, right? So yeah, there's a lot of that. Although I mean, most of the people, I mean, all the people really that we have in here are like successful at some level. So it's funny because. We, it's not like we're sh- we have a shortage of guests, you know. There's a lot of there's a lot of people, but they're all thinking the same thing. Like, what about me? I'm probably next. It's going to be my turn to like get the axe in this business. But they're they're all thinking it, but they're all succeeding. But they're all still there. But it is I, you're right. I mean, I have a friend at the Times who I think is immensely talented, and I cannot imagine that she would ever ever be asked to go. And whenever I ask her how she is, she always just says, "Well." I'm, Still got a job. You know, it's like, you're at the Times. At I mean, you know, they, they still, I mean, we know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're survivors. Right. They've survived. They figured something out. Yeah. So you you so you so decide to, to, to make the leap. We don't have to get into the ins and outs of like a book deal. But, um, but I am interested in then, you know, the question is like, are you expanding an article? Uh, no. Or are you starting, are you just saying like, here's the premise. We're going to start from scratch. I have to tell you, I... I I my idea was like I had to start from scratch, yeah. and one of the reasons is that um, first of all, if you ever expand a magazine story, automatically people just fold their arms and stare at you skeptically and think that all you're doing is going to be adding a bunch of padding. Yeah, and so you can't do that. I mean, your whole um, sense of like integrity is at stake there. That you know you can't be that person who did that, right? So that's one thing. Also. Even in spite of how hard I worked on the book proposal, there were a few reactions from uh, editors at different publishing houses, and I won't name them, mm-hmm. but who said, oh, people are going to think they've already read this. Hmm. And I found it so infuriating that it was like rocket fuel. I mean, I just thought, no, they are not. I'm going to – that's so mean and trivializing and reductive and assumes I can't find anything else to say or that nobody will want to read it just because the stories of the families will be, like, enticing and that you'll be drawn in by characters or that well, – I mean, that's that's just – I mean, I, I just I, – I was actually kind of um, – more resentful than I'd like to admit, I think, after reading some of the feedback from some of those huh. answers. so Was that helpful? In- yes, of course it was, because I thought, well, my God, I mean, I'm just going to forget I even wrote that piece. You know, like, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, like, limit myself to four paragraphs, and that's it. It's also, and I'll tell you, I had one incredibly constructive conversation with Nan Graham at Scribner, who... Um, she read my proposal. She really liked it. She wrote this very honest response saying, 
you know, I still think you're not getting at the big thing, which is what it's like to launch kids who are older. You know, this still feels to me like the proposal of a new mom. And you haven't talked about what the kind of difficulties are with, I think she had 13-year-old twins at the time or something. And she said, you know, I'd like to hear you think about that. I want to, you know, you should go there. This was in a note. It might not. It might have even been to my agent that that note, and it was so helpful. And I loved her when I met her. I thought she was great. I mean, my editor Lee Boudreau at Echo is amazing. But, but um, I, I met with Lee afterwards, and it was Nan's kind of like grilling me about this that also helped clarify stuff for me. Like, oh, adolescence has to be a much larger piece than I was giving it credit for. Mm. I really have to assign the appropriate way to adolescence. She's totally right. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the the book got better even after the proposal was out. You know, like the, the proposal didn't even wind up being really the skeleton for the book at all, in fact. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I was like paid to write a book that actually had no correspondence to the proposal. <laughs> I can't tell you what the proposal said. Well, from a reporting here. perspective, then you're, you're looking at a landscape of like most of the world, like p- parents. Yeah. I'll just find some parents that will represent all parents in some way or another. Like, how do you even, how do you start that? I love you for asking that. And, and uh, oh my God, that was so hard because exactly. And in fact, I had that trouble when I was writing the magazine piece. Like I kept saying to my editor, how do I do this systematically? Systema- I was hung up on this word, systematically, because we all know parents. So why am I calling one random parent as opposed to another random parent? And why would I call one in Seattle rather than in Mississippi rather than in Brooklyn? Like there was no way. And so the way that I landed on it for the magazine piece, because it had a very – magazines obviously have a shorter turnaround time, is I just found um, – Parenting groups through I can't remember I think it was the the why not the why I don't remember what it was but maybe the, maybe it was the ninety second street why mm-hmm. um, but they could be in New York also they were, for they, the magazine for the piece. magazine exactly and I found them through that but for the book that was this huge question and I got asked by a lot of um, editors who were interested who really wanted to know and my first answer was very naive I didn't know that this was um, impossible. What I thought I would do was piggyback onto a university um, marriage lab or oh, a family yeah. lab. Uh-huh. I thought maybe a professor will be gracious and let me tag along. And there's no shortage of gracious professors out there who I think would have been glad to. But there are ethics rules that prevent such a thing. People who participate in these things do so with an understanding that their names will be protected, they will be anonymous. And I wanted my families to be on the record because Jonah Lehrer was blowing up at just that moment Uh. that I was, like, starting to do my research. And there were a couple of other things where it just looked like people who were writing about social science were being lazy. They were making up quotes. They were not doing their homework. They were not fact-checking. They were double-dipping into their own work. You know, so I was paranoid. I wanted all the families identified until the adolescence section in the adolescence chapter i don't name them yeah uh, right for right and I, for obvious reasons i yeah. mean you have to be humane about these things i mean <laughs> kids are now like getting arrested and doing like all the fun right. silly things that adolescents do and the parents are grappling with really big questions and so it's like okay i, I obviously i'm gonna let that i'm uh, hopefully i will have established enough credibility by page 220 of my book that i can start disguising people or whatever, 200 of my book. So what did I do? So I finally called one of these family social science guys out in Minnesota. And I said, I don't know. I am hitting walls here. It doesn't look like I can piggyback onto any one university program. Uh, I I don't know how to do this. I I don't want to do it through parenting classes because those are often mandated by the state for people who are being negligent parents. I don't know how to do this. Mm -hmm. And he said, well... Very coincidentally, I mean, you just happen to have called the exact right person for this because Minnesota has this program that 90,000 parents pass through annually. It's funded by the state. It's called the Early Childhood Family Education Program. I am the faculty advisor (laughs) to it from the University of Minnesota. It was so random. I mean, I had called others. I had called other people. Yeah. But... I don't know how many phone calls I could have made. I think he was probably like my seventh or eighth in, you know, despairing phone call to someone I'd met and really enjoy- enjoyed along the way. And then boom, it was like the world changed. 
you decided to sort of surface that in the book in a sense like it talks about how you found them it talks about where yeah. you went to find them why did you decide to do that rather than just drop in on their because lives? for precisely the reason that you said otherwise um there's a zillion parents out there how do you choose one or two i mean i, mean, I tried to make it clear in the beginning that I was trying to look at the center of the center of the bell curve here to the extent that there was one. I didn't look at rich parents and I didn't look at poor parents. Yeah, you talk about that in right. the introduction. Exactly. There aren't even that many upper middle class parents in this book. I mean, it really aims for like the middle of the middle. And so I don't know. I thought it was sort of um, it rhymed with that theme. I then went to the middle of the country and I sat in on 20 classes and I found the middle of those groups. You know, it just seemed somehow to. Um, I just wanted to establish myself, I think, as trustworthy at the outset. Like, look, I tried to be as rigorous about this as I could. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't taking and, – and I also wanted to, to, to show that um, I didn't walk in with any ideas about what I would find. And I figured that if I explained to everybody that I was just showing up at all of these classes, I was going to be taking my cues from stuff that people said. Uh, again, I think I was driven in part by – by uh, the anxiety that sort of went with watching Jonah Lehrer, and who's a really nice guy, by the way. He's like the sweetest guy ever, mm-hmm. you know, implode. I, I, it just made me so hypervigilant, probably to the point of, you know, neuroticism that's even off the charts for my own standards, you know, but I, but it just seemed necessary. So that's how I found that. And and that was like a godsend. I mean, that became the backbone of the first three chapters of my book. Yeah, and then when you, it sort of describes in the book, you know, you go to a meeting and then somebody kind of like catches your attention a little bit and then you go spend time with them. Exactly. But in a, I mean, even in a regular magazine story, it can be very hard to figure out sort of like when you've got enough. But how do you decide, okay, I've spent enough time with you know, parents, this set of parents in okay. order to feel like I'm, I've got it. <laughs> Here's what happened. So I went out to Minnesota. I sit in on these like 15 to 20 classes. I come back with, I don't know. So that would be 15 to 20 hours worth of, you know, tape. Mm-hmm. And I transcribe them and I was doing it while I was there in Minnesota. So that was not like an overwhelming task. So you transcribed it all yourself? I transcribed it all myself. You can't make anybody else do that. And also, I had, some people pay people to do I know, it. I know, I know, I know. But then you kind of miss out on like how people say things. I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. It's all about the delivery. And so, yeah. And there was a, a few classes where I guess I was like typing really, really quickly and using the tape recorder as backup. And then I would go back, you know, I, I was slightly faking it um, in some classes where the people, where the groups were smaller. And so uh, I come back and I'm in the airport and my brother calls and I tell him what I've been up to. And he said, oh, I get it. So like you were basically collecting quotes. And I said, yes, exactly. I was collecting quotes. And then I said out loud, except I guess that's what you do in a magazine story. And I'm writing a book, which is supposed to have characters. Oh, my God, I'm going to have to go back. Really? Yeah, really. You didn't. I, you didn't think you thought. I had. I thought I was done. Nailed it. I was thought it. nailed it. Got it. And then I realized. And again, so like this structure of my book changed again because I, I then realized, no wait, I'm gonna focus on one, per, you know, family per chapter at least in these like three chapters, and other voices are gonna be like running ambiently throughout. You're, there's going to be like this Greek chorus. You're going to hear stuff. But I then realized this will only work. And it just so happened that I had just started on the airplane on the way back. Um, Arlie Hochschild's The Second Shift, mm-hmm. um, which is really, really good. But it's case studies. It's exactly that. I don't know if you've ever read it, but oh my God, it is so great. It's like reality television meets social science. Uh-huh. You were just sitting there in people's living rooms, listen to them fight about divisions of labor and about, I did that last night. No, I did that last night. Well, you know, your mom did it like that, so you think it's okay to do it like that. I mean, really deeply personal arguments and uh, people like trying to adjudicate what they believe is like a fair arrangement in their marriage in terms of distributing chores and stuff. (laughs) And I thought, this is delectable. I'm eating this thing up. And I like Oliver Sacks. I suddenly realized the case studies model. I was, uh, I love Freud. I mean, any, I love all case studies. I should have been thinking this way all along, but my brain's not trained to do that because I'm a journalist. <laughs> yeah. It's I'm not, you know, and so um, 
It took my brother sort of saying that, I don't know, it took having this conversation for that to happen. And, you know, in the end, the criticism that has stuck with me the most about my book is that this was written by a magazine journalist. It feels, mag- you know. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I mean, Andrew Solomon wrote this really lovely review. It was like such a nice review. But in it, he said that it can sometimes, that my book could feel a little like um, a series of smart magazine articles, I think is how he put it, which okay. was, you know, and then he immediately went back to being very nice. But I thought, you know, he's right. Like, that's right. That that was my rookie mistake. If you were following one family throughout, there's less chance of it feeling that way. I feel like if you've got a bunch of, you're trying to weave together a bunch of different I, characters. It's... And there are also there are advantages to that. I mean, you know, it, it became more digestible. People could read it more quickly. You have to make some kind of trade-off, I think, between how hard you're going to ask the readers to work and all that stuff. But I mean, it's amazing. I thought that like my magazine writing instincts were going to like work out really well for a book, but and they were helpful in some cases, but they were a hindrance in others that I had not realized. Mm-hmm. So you've made this decision to to find these characters and and some of these characters. I mean, the one woman, the the grandmother. Year old, yeah, um, I mean, that's a, that to me was like the most powerful p- parts of the book that connected too. with me came through her. Me too. And so when you when you found her, then you go back and spend time with her. And did you feel like I've got it? Like, how, yeah. How, I mean, like, when yeah. do you know? Like, you could have gone for weeks and weeks, right. That was you your know? question. How long Sorry. Do you sort of Sorry. In? Yeah. So okay, here's the thing: if you're like showing up at a strange family's house with a tape recorder and they're nice enough to let you in you can't push it mm-hmm, you know what i mean mm-hmm. and you're also sitting in on really intimate stuff if you're from a university setting you might be able to get away with saying look this is a very elaborate study i think that you come with like a different imprimatur i think if you say that you're um, a, jur- a magazine journalist who's writing a book and they're nice and they're trusting i still think you don't push it for more than like two days which mm-hmm. is what I did with everybody. And mm-hmm. believe it or not, that's a lot of material. It's a lot of time to spend from morning until night, the minute everyone is up until the minute dinner is served. To do that two full days with people. And you're also, I'm doing interviews. I'm doing long interviews with everybody in those settings. Yeah, It's enough. Yeah. I mean, I could have done much longer. Yeah. I could have for sure. But there were also practical considerations. My son when I started doing the research, was three. I couldn't keep leaving. You know, that was not fair. And my husband, you know, was working. And and so, I mean, full time. And so, I mean, that was really hard. And so I guess that was another consideration. That was a big deal. But you do seem to, again, like, I feel like maybe just reading it as a reporter, like, it's all right there. Like, you don't deny that you're that you're there with them. Like, sometimes you'll drop in these little mentions of, like, how you influenced just to, almost to say, like, yeah, I'm also having an influence here. But it's but then you sort of fade in the background. You can see they they go into their normal routine, even though you're sitting there, even though later they might say, like, you come with us to this thing. Right. It seems like they do kind of fall into their natural patterns, maybe just because that's what they have to do because they're taking care of their kids. Exactly. I mean, I think that the reason I would bring up myself in those moments was because there were moments where I felt like um, the Heisenberg, you know, was it, is it uncertainty principle? Yep, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, was fully operative. There were the moments where I felt like uh, my being there was probably having a direct outcome on the situation. Mm-hmm. So I had to sort of explain that I was asking a particular question that was triggering a certain chain of events. Otherwise, it just it's not fair. You know, in some ways. And also, you know, you're just you become another character. Hopefully you're not like, you know, hogging the show. I I think, you know, I tried to hang back a lot. Um, And then that's right. And then I would recede and they would do their thing and I would just kind of silently watch them. But, you know, if I was asking them about stuff, there were times when like with Angie and Clint, who were like they were they were chapter two. Deeply sympathetic people, lovely people. Mm -hmm. She was a psychiatric nurse who worked nights and he was um, he worked at Avis and Budget Rent-A-Car in the Minneapolis airport on the morning shift. Um, And incidentally, I've had investment bankers, husband and wives, tell me that they see themselves in Angie and Clint, which I find, like, really funny because, of course, their secretary at Goldman or wherever they are makes more money (laughs) than both of those two do combined. But, you know, they are very relatable people. They are truly – their marriage really feels – like a lot of marriages. Um, they were great. Anyway, so there was one point where I was asking them, I was trying to get them to talk about why Angie felt like she was doing so much more work. 
why she felt like she was doing 50% of the childcare because Clint was insisting he was doing 50%. Mm -hmm. And Andrew was like, no way. It's 70 for me and it's 30 for him. And if I had not asked that question, I don't know if they'd have been having that conversation, but their answers were totally interesting and revealing and taught me something about the way that men would think and women think. And and so, but you feel like you have to put yourself in there. You know, it, it wouldn't have been organic otherwise. It would have been weird. Well, on a broader level, I mean, you sort of, you may have gotten at this with the Joan Alera thing, actually, but I, uh, but when I got to the end, it seemed like, so this is a book that's has a lot of social science in it. I mean, yeah. you do have this course of voices that come in from research, from uh, even some other popular books. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the end, it's actually kind of about the limits of social science, it seemed to me. It's sort of like, these are all the things we can measure, but actually the most important thing can't be measured. Right. And I wondered if you got into it thinking that that was the case. Because you've, you've also written a lot of other stories that, that call on social science. And I wonder if, if you felt that way when you got to the end. Like, actually, there's some things that social science just can't answer. That's an interesting question because I think that was my bias going in. And I walked in with very few, very few. But that was one. Because, first of all, from what I knew of social science and just the, the instruments that they use to measure our well-being, I thought, well, they're great insofar as they go and for what they do. But they're probably insufficient for getting... If social scientists wanted to run around and measure awe, they could, but they don't measure awe. They don't tend to say, how many moments of awe have you had today? How many moments of awe have you had over the course of the week? So it's not necessarily a failing of social science. I think if they set out to, to measure that, they could do it. Hmm. Or if they said, how many meaningful moments have you had today? Or you know, how meaningful has your life felt today? Or you know, there, there are ways to ask these questions and to be systematic about them. Um, but that's not the way most of these studies were structured and they had different aims in mind. So I don't know if it was a shortcoming of social science necessarily, but certainly whatever was published that was out there so far wasn't getting at this thing that I knew we were all feeling, mm-hmm. which is, but I nothing else in the world gives me the privilege to love somebody this much. I mean, I don't, there's no rival, there's no equal to this in my world. I mean, I never knew what it was like to love something this deeply. I never knew what it was to be this afraid of losing something that I cared about so much. I never knew what it was to be both on my very best and very worst behavior, sometimes in the same day. Um, I'm not a religious person at all. I was, like, born without the gene. I, it's tragic how unspiritual I am in some ways. And But I've had mothers, mother, you know, mom's moments, you know, m- moments in motherhood that have been close to something like religious but 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 I don't think social scientists say things like how many numinous moments have you had you know they don't do that so you have to figure out what to do you know so I was suddenly like turning to other texts (laughs) to try and explain all this um Dan Gilbert who wrote Stumbling on Happiness who I love and adore he's a great guy so I gave him my book and to read at the end and he called me back and he was lovely and you know he said very nice things and he said let me tell you there are like six places where I just threw this book halfway across the room because Hmm. you were totally shortchanging social scientists and making it sound like we don't know how to measure this stuff yes we do you know yeah we can we just we just don't well but I think he was saying that the studies thus far haven't been organized in such a way he also he and I have an actual disagreement about this and you know it's very hard to disagree with Dan Gilbert because he's smarter than I am (laughs) He might be smarter than both of us, but he's... But he, is he happier? Uh, yes. No, he is. In fact, I would say well, he's fair. hyperthymic. Oh, it's so unfair. No, I mean, he's one of these people who studies happiness, not because he, he's obsessed with it because he can't have it, which is true of a lot of people who think about happiness. He's one of these people who is virtually always in a good mood. Like, things are always great with Dan. So, um, and I'm constantly telling him that I think this is the difference between my, my writing sensibility and his. Uh, and I think it might explain also this particular difference. I wrote a sentence that he he really took issue with. I said that there were different kinds of happiness. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, there aren't. And I said, if you're feeling joy, you can be feeling absolute terror at the same time. Terror can be running in the background, that you're just totally afraid that you're going to lose this person, that you just love them so much. Whereas it's not the same as that kind of great you know, kind of rush that you feel like when you're having sex or something. It's different. You know, it's totally different. And... His answer was, they're on the same continuum. They are yeah. part of the same feeling. They are the same family. And it's not like they are a different species. And I kept saying, yeah, they are. They're different animals. Hmm. 
And I don't remember whether I just like capitulated or not when I wrote the final thing. <laughs> like, I don't remember what, like, I, whether I thought, do I really want to quarrel with him? I mean, he knows a lot more about this. And what am I basing this I'm on? I'm sure at some point you're going to do some sort of like onstage Q&A with him and you have to well, go back and look well, back. Well, like, I know. Well, I actually, and I did. No, I went up to Ham- Cambridge and I did have this conversation with him. And I mean, I think we just kind of agreed to disagree on this. And I mean, I think the example that I gave, and this I have said a lot, but I, but I was curious to see how he would respond to it. Like I did say to him, you know, oh, I know what it was because he had at one point in my book on, on, on the draft, he, he had written something very funny. It was with this, the grandmother. Uh-huh. There was a moment where she was with her grandson and she just looked radiantly crazily happy she was at the water park yeah yeah and she just and i had invoked that quote from kundera where like she just looked like a 20 year old she was totally unencumbered by her age she had lost consciousness of her age she did not she was no age at that moment it was so beautiful and she was so um just uh, oh she was delirious and she was so fun to be around so um i wrote you know, that no graph could capture that. Mm-hmm. that. There was just no chart in the world that could measure that. Like, how on earth could you measure that on a scale of one to five? And Dan's answer in the margins to me was, sure, you can measure it. It's a five. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I know. And I was, and I said to him, well, I mean, of course Footnote. he's, I know, and he's right. But, you know, if if that's, those are my options. I mean, I wouldn't, I, you know, there are other things I would give a five too. I mean, if I had a really nice night with Dan, I would rate it a five. <laughs> and I don't think that having a nice night with Dan and having this moment where you are just like in some other kind of planetary universe with your kid or your grandkid. I don't know. Is that also a five, really? They seem qualitatively different. Right. I'm they sure. seem Well, or he would say, you know what, then they're not qualitatively different, but then we should just change the scale and you should not give that dinner with me a five. You should have downgraded me to a 3.5 and you give that moment a five and you give very few fives. Don't be promiscuous (laughs) with your fives. That would be his answer. You know, that you, Jen Senior, are a five slut, you know, or something (laughs) like that. Um, But, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you'd answer it, to be honest. But yeah, anyway. Well, this sort of relates to, um, I had one question, which may may be more in the genre of questions you've been asked a lot, but... um, do you feel like people are going to read this and break out of the the sort of patterns that you describe that people fall into because of their circumstances and modern parenting is so difficult because there's not, you know, all these reasons why it's changed over the last, you know, hundreds of years. Do, do you think people can read it and parent differently in a way that will make them happier? Probably not. I'm happy that people simply read it and feel validated. I mean – there are certainly people who say things like, I just realized I had to calm down or I had to let go of it or mm-hmm. I had to like stop caring so much mm-hmm. or stop, you know, yes, it was not the worst thing if I didn't sign up my kid for seven activities. I definitely get some of that, that stuff. That was an example that actually I, I thought of. Yeah, yeah, no, I do get that. Someone read it and say like, you know what? Maybe it doesn't make a difference. Oh, no, I, de- I definitely do get that stuff. Definitely. I mean, uh, yeah. And I've had people say to me that they've had some really good conversations with their spouses about divisions of labor and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's really gratifying to hear. But like, no, I feel like, I mean, I don't know how any of us are going to figure out what we're supposed to be doing and how to walk that fine line. The tension between preparing them and not getting caught up in economic, the economic anxieties that are very real. I mean, the middle class is shrinking. Somebody had written at some point that they thought that maybe a lot of the reasons that parents sign up their kids for these things is status. Mm -hmm. See, I'm not sure I agree with that. Because, I mean, I feel like maybe two or three parents in every classroom are, are obsessed with status and the other like 22 or 23 are just really freaking out. They really don't. They want to make sure that their kids still have like a toehold in the middle class. Mm-hmm. And so I don't feel like anybody will be able to read my book and know how to ha- how to solve that question. Those are like beyond all of us. Right. So the most you can do is give yourself a break, right? And so, yes, maybe they can do that. Maybe they can realize that they don't have to go to Kitty Gymboree. The world will not end. That, you know, three extracurricular extracurricular activities are probably enough. Maybe they'll talk more with their spouses or recognize where their husbands or wives or partners are coming from. Mm-hmm. I never presumed that my book would be able to actually provide any kind of bigger solutions, you know. I, yeah. don't see, I wish, I, but I don't see it happening. Well, let's. I want to talk also about how you got to this point of writing this book because you've written about a lot of different things over the years, 
and you know that are very different from from this topic. You know, right? You were writing about politics for forever, very heavily for a very long time, and how did you how did you start? The f- earliest piece I found was a Times a Times piece that you wrote in like 1992, end of 1992. Yeah, yeah. I was a clerk at the Hollywood Net- on the Potomac. Oh my God! You found the first. I think you found the first byline piece I ever had in journalism. That's the first. Yeah, that's the first one I could find. That's unbelievable. I guess I had freelance pieces in Washington City paper. That is impressive. Wow. But how do you just like start out at the Times? Uh, it w- I got a job as a clerk in the Washington Bureau. Uh-huh. It was a recession, 10% unemployment. It was terrible. So I was a freelancer the first year out of school. I worked at Gallaudet, the um, College for the Deaf. I actually knew oh. sign language. Oh, I you t- wrote a story about Yeah, you wrote yeah, a story about sign language. Yeah, I did write a story for the Times about sign language becoming politically correct. When I graduated in a serious, profound recession, I w- worked at the English Center at Gallaudet teaching kids how to write English papers and stuff. And I was an assistant English teacher. So I got just paid by the hour. And they needed somebody. So I did that. And... Um, Got enough clips, applied for this Times job. I was had down you, there. Had you had exposure to journalism before and I was sort of knew what alter- you wanted to do? I was at the Alternative Weekly at uh, undergraduate. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I, I loved writing. I, yeah. No, I wrote throughout college. So, yeah. Um, and so then I went to the Times. But it was interesting being like at the New York Times in 1992 because there I am. I'm young. Hal Raines is, you know, running the, the show. And I remembered looking around and thinking, these are a lot of really unhappy adults. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. I mean, this was the most successful des- destination one could imagine, and no one was happy. It made a huge impression on me. I can't yeah. explain it. I mean, that was just a very miserable place at that particular moment. And not in the not in the kind of like hard drinking, smoking in the newsroom. No, that would have been cool. Fun way. That would have been really neat. No, Johnny Apple had some of that. Some of that. R.W. Yeah, Apple yeah. Jr. did. But no, no, there was a lot of fear. And uh, there was like definitely a two-tiered system where Hal Raines had like his small cluster of favorite people. And then there was everyone else hmm. to whom he never bothered speaking. Um, you know, and it was, it was painful to look at, actually. And he had this glassed-in office you could see in, and he would have some of his favorite people in there, and they would, like, be drinking, you know, cocktails, and everybody outside would be working, you know? I mean, it was really, it was pretty brutal. <laughs> demoralizing. Yeah, it was really demoralizing. And I just, as a 22-year-old, was taking this all in and thinking, uh, this strikes me as really wrong, you know? Huh. Um, but, uh, I mean, look, he eventually was called to, the, you know, called to the mat for this, right? So, uh, I mean, I wasn't the only one who noticed. Eventually, the whole organization did. Um, so, uh, but that was sort of an interesting experience. It also made me realize that I probably wasn't cut out for newspapers. You know, I, I never thought I was. I was at the Alternative Weekly undergrad. So, um, and I liked the longer rhythm and I liked the long form stuff, you know, but there weren't, I didn't have any choices when, during the recession. I got this great job opportunity to work at the Times Washington Bureau. I'm not going to say no. Yeah. Health insurance as a 22 year old, you're not going to say no. So, um, so I did that. Um, but that was where, yeah, I started. And then I was still in daily newspapers, um, not daily. I was at this weekly newspaper called The Hill, which is now, as we know, right, it's, its incarnation is very different. I was part of the starting team. And we were not very good, but we were trying very hard. And it was good experience to be covering a beat and learning what it meant to be responsible on a beat. I wasn't particularly good at it. I, you know, whoever was on my on the same beat on the um, rival paper roll call always bested me. <laughs> um, I just wasn't good at it. You know, I mean, it just wasn't what I did. But where uh, are they today? Oh, they're all doing great, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, they're all doing. They're all doing great. Oh. Juliet Alprin continually like kicked my butt, and she's at the Washington Post and has written, you know, some great books. And, and no, she's she's doing. I mean, she's an amazing journalist. <laughs> no, no, I, I can in no way say that. You know, I, I have I have bested them all. <laughs> ha ha ha! No, no, no. They, they were insanely talented but people. Did you have a love people. for uh, for politics? And no, that no. isn't a thing. No, it's you like I got, went. You got a, that was where you. That was could where go. I landed because it was. A recession. It is so funny. It's like I got a PhD in something I didn't. I would not have even bothered majoring in. <laughs> it was purely by accident. I, it, it's almost like I got off on the wrong highway exit, huh. and it took forever for me to figure out how to get out of it. I mean, how did I, you get out of it? I don't even know. I mean, because you for, kept running for politics. I know. Well, it became also. the thing I knew. Yeah. And also because you know the the fun revelation was that once I was at New York Magazine, I could treat politics 
ethnographically. I could look at Congress as this strange little city like with this weird little subculture that the House of Representatives was like a giant state school, you know, like with like the kind of party frats and the serious <laughs> people and the, the handful of serious people and, you know, who are just like hopelessly pushing against like the kind of I mean, I, I had ways of thinking about Congress that, you know, seemed like it was its own I don't know, demimond, not demimond, because that, that makes it sound like it's an under, you know, like an underworld or something. But, you know, like it was its own little subculture. Yeah. So I, I that was at least a slight move away and that I got to write about it as a culture and a place and like what the rituals were, that, you know. It's like not down in the daily n- Not news, right. So like when news. I, exactly. So when I wrote about Hillary, like, you know, becoming a member of Congress, I got to write things like, you don't understand. The way Congress works is that like, Republicans are going to have to be her best friend in the Senate because you can't pass anything without 60 votes, really. So I got to sort of write about the folkways of the Senate and who she had to suck up to and, you know, who she had to talk to. That was really fun. Um, But then uh, it was an editor at, oh, you know what? I wrote a story about how to break up with your shrink. Oh, yeah. About yeah, yeah. how to break up with my shrink. I mm-hmm. wrote a story about breaking up with my own shrink. This was for New York. For New York. Also. And, that, and I had wanted to be a, a shrink, like, at one time when I was younger. And huh. I had even gone pre-med briefly, thinking I would do that. So um, I'd always there had always been this kind of part of me that was like a social scientist, Monquet, who really wanted to, you know, that's what I should have done. I should have been an anthropology PhD. I should have been something else. Um, and so... When I wrote that piece, I think that piece was in the back of um, one of my editor's minds when he asked me to write a story about happiness studies. Yeah. That was the first big social science piece that I did. And that was where I actually first ran into the uh, f- this finding in the social sciences that I talked about, that kids don't improve parents' happiness. Mm-hmm. That was like 2006. Six. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Very well done. Actually, yes. I, the funny thing is I noticed, I was rereading that piece, and I noticed that there was a uh, fact that made it w- its way from that piece into the book, which was that uh, the most popular class at Harvard yeah. one year was like positive psychology. The reason I bring it up is because it sort of made me think uh, we have a lot of the magazine writers who come in here and say like, oh, I don't really have a beat and I kind of wish I did. But you were you were kind of on the happiness I was on well, I was on the, the social science social beat. So like you know, because yeah. you know, I, then I did I did right. I did stuff about like um yeah like social capital. I did something about burnout. I did something about the way that the recession might have changed New York culture. What else did I do? I did a couple of other. Th- I did oh, uh, the enduring influence of high school on our adult lives. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there were a few others that I'm not remembering now, but will occur to me. That's so, what I meant when the, all, yeah. any of those seemed like they could be books. Like yeah. the high school one seemed like it could be a book. I know. I'm still. Can I tell you? I'm sort of tempted, like as a next book, but I don't. Yeah. But people have very different re- responses to high school. I mean, I think there are certain things about parenting that are so universal. Yeah. And I think that high school, uh, I think if you write, if you write, a, if you're good and you write a book about parenting, most people will be nodding along with you. There's a reason that there's a certain number of parenting books that have just stayed on the shelves, mm-hmm. right? It's just they are. You can seriously relate to them. Um, even I, I would imagine that even the best book about high school, only about fifty percent of it, and you know, people who went to high school would relate to. Right, they would have people who had. Yeah, I went to an all girls school. Yeah. I went to a school in, like with only twenty five kids in a class in Montana, and you know, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. How did you make the jump to New York Magazine? How did that actually? Happen? Oh my God, my old college roommate was Ariel Kaminer, who at the time was. Um, I think she was writing party lines. She was doing like the parties beat. She was writing this wickedly funny. Um, column for the, for New York and she called me and said that there was a job opening and it was only part time huh. and it involved only writing like 350 or 400 words per week did I want it and I thought yeah because I know I'm not going to be a newspaper girl and I know that politics is not really my bag and I want out so yeah I, I mean I just jumped at it Yeah, I auditioned for it and, and you were in D.C.? I was in D.C. I auditioned for it. But like, let's face it, it was not very competitive. I mean, it was, you know, a job that involved no health insurance, you know. Um, oh, part-time job, no health It was health a part-time insurance. job, no health insurance. And so it wasn't that hard. I think Ariel also really helped me get it. I think she stood in the editor's office and said, you should hire her, you know, um, um, and handed her my clips. But that's how it started. And then once I was in the door, at that time, New York Magazine was not particularly hierarchical. If you did well, if you there was a lot of room for you to self-invent in those days. Huh. You could it was in flux. Caroline Miller had just inherited the joint. It was a surprise. Kurt had been let go. 
Um, and so people who showed a lot of Kurt initiative, Anderson. Yes, Kurt Anderson had been had been let go, you know, because he had had the audacity to actually write about a friend of the publisher. And so, you know, <laughs> or to assign a story about him. And Caroline, who was like amazing, she was so great. She let people who um, had initiative do what they were capable of. I mean, it's very rare to find that. Yeah. And so I made inroads there in a way that I think a person can't now. I mean, New York is now um, very, it's much more hierarchical. I think, you know, you come in at a certain level and you stay at a certain level and you, you don't keep moving up generally. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it's more partitioned. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that journalism has been changing. So there's just not as much fluidity. You know, there's a lot more pressures. But you also you also survived a, a change in editor, which is I think for a person in a staff writing job, sometimes is like difficult. Well, actually, they come and clean people out. Or you're no? right. Well, well, you know, no, well, here's what's funny. I left New York Magazine uh-huh. and went to work for the New York Times Magazine for Adam Moss, and then Adam Moss, about six I, months later, got sense. hired to go, you know, edit New York Magazine, and. Um, and I just followed him back into the building. The Times Magazine is a really strange gig. I mean, I don't know if other people have spoken about this. It's it's great. The magazine itself is great. But you don't get a desk. You don't get health insurance. You have to sign something saying that you won't write for any of the competitors. Yeah. It's like uh, <laughs> all the downside. I mean, you know, you can't dine on prestige you can't feed your family on prestige you can't you know it's 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 a hard thing to do and also because you're not in the building if you if you're a creature of the office which i discovered that i kind of am you know you don't get the camaraderie of like other people so you don't like uh, working at home i'm okay working at home my husband works at home now so it's like it's fun to be around him um i have other friends in brooklyn who i can see so that's okay i still as I've gotten older, I've also gotten so much more introverted that sometimes I really don't mind. And I work standing up now. And you can't do that at New York Magazine. We still sit. Why not? You could be the first. I'd have to demand a standing desk. That just feels really diva it's Probably they have to, weird. by law, give it to you or something. Oh, my God. Do you think so? Ergonomically. It's you possible. Know, can I tell you something? It changed my life. <laughs> really? It totally changed. Yes. I could, st- I could spend... The next 20 minutes telling you about why everyone in the world should work standing we up. Need just you and Susan Orlean just talking to each other. Oh, my God. Does she standing. work standing up? She has a treadmill desk. She wrote a thing about it in the New Yorker. It was just like, oh I'm an God, insufferable person because all I do is talk about my treadmill desk. Yeah. Okay. See, <laughs> the treadmill is a bridge too far for me. I can't. Yeah. That you just, say that now. Oh, God. No. But then there's machinery humming in your bedroom. Like, <laughs> it just seems like... I don't know. That's just a little weird. I mean, I work in my you know bedroom. I don't. I don't think I want a treadmill in there too. <laughs> but how did you? How did you uh, manage the sort of writing process of of the book? Oh, it was the worst. First of all, um, Adam Moss, the editor of New York Magazine, gave me. I initially asked for a year off, mm-hmm. and he gave it to me. Which is astonishing. I mean, I don't know anybody who can get that from anybody. Um, Adam does that for his writers. So after a year, I realized that I needed the full year only to do the research. Um, And then I needed to write. (laughs) And I had a kid. You know, I mean, a lot of the people who take time off to write books, especially at New York, I I might have been the only woman. Um, There was a a couple of other parents, but... um, you know, they had help. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's different if you're a mom, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and my kid was littler than the other parents. Um, so, uh, and I write slow. I mean, I just do. You know, Bob Colker, who I think you've talked to in here. Yeah. He's, yeah, no, he's he's my closest friend at the office. And I, I just adore him. Uh, he writes like five times as fast as I do. He's a very fast writer. And his writing is every bit as good. I mean, it's not, there's no difference in the product. It, he's just a, an extremely quick writer. Um I knew I was going to need more time, and I came back to Adam, and I said, I don't know what to do. I need another year. And the good news was, I I mean, this is both good and bad. I mean, it's very perverse. You know, New York Magazine, all magazines, we were suffering. It was the middle of this recession. No ad revenue was coming in. It was terrible. So if a writer said that they needed extra time, it's another salary you don't have to pay. Yeah. What was interesting to me is that he took me back at – 
as if I'd never left the building. And he let me keep my desk so that if I wanted to work around other people and I wanted to take free coffee from the coffee pot, I was allowed to do it. Hmm. But I mean, I just, I felt like I was living like basically in Sweden. I felt like I had like this kind of European, like, you know, Northern European kind of social support network around me, you know, where like just my employer had my back and was going to protect me. And that is a, that's a theme that we, on this, everybody we have from, we had Dan P. Lee. I talked to Dan P. Lee, who is sort of like, I have had trouble with all editors except the ones at New York Magazine. They're the best. Like everyone, everyone seems to be really infatuated with writing for. Uh, they're amazing, and I think it's the reason that we have like seven people with books this year. They're they're just really good to us, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I mean, God, I hope that they feel like it's paid off, you know. I mean, but it's really they they. And I think that's the only reason I was able to do it. But now you but you spent a lot of time promoting it. Are you still within the year? So I no no. So I took two years off total, came back, um, worked for a full year, and then asked for four months off because between the promotion and speaking at TED and the book tour, it just it was a lot. Yeah, you know, it just it, it was silly to even pretend they shouldn't be paying me money while I'm <laughs> running around. You know, yeah. So, well, and you know, now you're on this like rocket ship or I mean you just front page of the Times Book Review, right? And then like Colbert Report and like I all hated these that appearance. Things. Oh my God. That, it's it seems very stress inducing. It's very stressful. I wouldn't that's such a personality it, that you have to like contend with in a weird way. Oh my God. I mean I think other people have had a better experience on it than I have. I was pretty traumatized by it. I just didn't <laughs> like it. I mean, I think a comic is the only one who will dare make it personal and turn it into something about you, right? Yeah. So his parting shot to me was, you know, are you gonna use the proceeds to pay for therapy for your kid? And it was wickedly funny and it got this like it's incre- got this like roar and applause, uh, an applause from the audience, and it broke my heart. I mean, it hit me right where I lived. Oh, no. And my answer to him, I, I, which you could barely hear uh, yeah. because the clo- the music was like playing, but the, my answer was, you know, I am really worried about that. Yeah, I and heard I would have gone there. If he, yeah, but of course he's not the person to like, go there with. It's right? over. Yeah, then it's over, and his, this giant head with pancake makeup and like rim, <laughs> you know, and, and these kind of max headroom glasses is suddenly two inches from your face, saying, "Thank you for being here." You know, and you're like, "Wait a minute, it's over." I can't address that because now I feel horrible. You just completely unglamorized appearing on the Colbert Report. Right I am now. so sorry. I know. Well, but but well, yeah, I think. But it's also just to say that you know, um, people are vulnerable. Yeah. You know, and it's a funny thing that all these writers who um, go on that show, and we are so lucky that he takes writers seriously enough to put them on and give them the time. But then, of course, when you're on there, he doesn't take you seriously at all. He just like you know is is ruthless and very funny. Um, and I mean. I think he's he, I think he's hilarious. I mean, I love him. So some part of me was having an amazing time. I think if he had not ended in that way, I would have I would have actually really enjoyed it. Yeah. I think the final comment was like kind of so crippling to me that I, I couldn't quite snap out of it. I I noticed like one of the big pieces you did in the last like four or five months was like a very long in- interview with Scalia. Yeah. That was like also like kind of blew up and people were talking about there's a lot of really interesting things most interesting perhaps was that he said he didn't know anyone who was gay or at least out (laughs) (laughs) Um, but are you trying to sort of make sure that you don't become like the person who talks about parenthood all the time are you kind of like this is great and I'm just going to ride this and like why not uh have you been eavesdropping on my conversations with my husband? I talk about this a lot. Um, I told you we we do a lot of research here. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, I did make a joke that right after this, I wanted to write six pieces about like the Speaker of the House and then like the Senate Majority Leader and then you know like about water policy and you know, I wanted to make sure that I was um, kind of counter programming so that people understood that like you know I, I was still a general interest general assignment writer and that I was a writer without portfolio blah blah blah. Um, I think that the reason that I would not want to only be talking about parenthood is mainly because I like doing more than one thing. Yeah. That's the only reason. Yeah. I know nothing about parenting. And people can sometimes make the mistake of asking, like, you know, I've got this problem with my kid. What should I do? And I look at them and say, I, I have no idea. I'm so sorry. You know? And so, you know, you feel like you could. You're now like the person in medical school. Who goes is just like first year medical school. Who all their friends say like, oh, I have a, right. like a shoulder thing. Do you know anything about that? <laughs> that like, is no, exactly it. Exactly. No, I haven't studied shoulders yet. <laughs> I don't know a thing about shoulders. Right. 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 I do feel a little like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least I hope you enjoy it because it's 
amazing. The book seems like it's going to be a huge success. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know. It's been fun. It's been crazy. It's been weird. Well, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. And uh, we'll hope to talk to you again on the next one. This has been such a blast. It's been great. Good. I'm glad. All right. Thanks for listening to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Longform. Our sponsor this week was Tiny Letter. And our guest was Jennifer Senior, the author of All Joy and No Fun. She writes for New York Magazine. Uh, Check out the book. You can find it at bookstores everywhere. Uh, Thanks a lot to our new editor, Jenna Weiss-Behrman, for making it sound great. And to our intern, Sarah Button. And don't forget that we will be at South by Southwest on March 8th. Uh, we have a live podcast with great guests along with Texas Monthly and the American Society of Magazine Editors. So hopefully we'll see you there if you're around the Texas area. Otherwise, uh, we will see you back here next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.